This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Journalist Craig Pittman is a native Floridian, born and raised in Pensacola, so he's a literal Florida man. He studied journalism at Troy State University in Alabama, where, according to his bio, his muckraking work for the student paper prompted an agitated dean to label him as the most destructive force on campus, end quote. He says he pursued journalism as a stepping stone to become a, becoming a novelist, but that didn't pan out. But he has spent decades as an investigative and environmental journalist most with the Tampa Bay Times, which he wrote for from 1998 until last year, covering a variety of newspaper beats and quite a few natural disasters. Again, his bio says, including hurricanes, wildfires, and the Florida legislature. These days, he writes for the nonprofit Florida Phoenix, and he co-hosts the podcast Welcome to Florida. Over the years as a journalist, Pittman has had the opportunity to write about some of Florida's most interesting characters and the wild stories they tend to star in. He's also the author of a number of nonfiction books, including his latest, The State You're In, Florida Men, Florida Women, and Other Wildlife. He joins us today via Zoom to talk about the new book and his work documenting Florida's weirdness, or shall we say distinctiveness. Craig, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you very much. I think distinctiveness is a better word. I like that. Okay, yeah, I, I came up with that. I thought that might resonate with you. Um, we do invite yeah. you, the listener, to weigh in on today's conversation using WGCU social media. Find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. So real quick, I want to go back to that little line I pulled from your bio, most destructive force on campus. Can you give us a sort of yeah. cite an example of that? I don't think he meant that as a compliment either. That was that was <laughs> strange about it. Um, uh, well, you know, the the thing is, we were I was part of a group where we thought that the newspaper should actually report news. Uh, you know, so we had stories about drug busts in the dorms. We had a story about the state ethics commission investigating the university president and his uh, relationship with a local bank and insurance company, things like that. And uh, the university officials objected to that and said that we should be more of a PR firm for the for the university, which is not how we had been taught in school. So we, you know, soldiered on reporting on things like that. And uh, and eventually the university cut off our funding. And uh, so we spent three months as an independent organization. And then we were financed by the Student Government Association. And then finally, the university relented and put us back on campus again. But I mean, it was it was a good lesson in the power of words and in, in just how uh, words could have an impact and, and have, have an effect on the way that you were perceived that, that um, they were really concerned about us and about what we were reporting on. Uh, and uh, I think that was what, what the Dean of the school of journalism was getting at was, was referring to me as most, the most destructive force on campus, just by virtue of, you know, telling the truth. Mm. And so, uh, I was invited back recently to give a talk, and I said, I said, they said, what would be the title of your talk? And I said, how to be the most destructive person <laughs> I can. <laughs> well, I'm glad I, bolt, I pulled it up. Um, so you just, yes. you just wrapped up a virtual book event, right? Tell us about it and sort of about what you're doing right now around this new book. Well, uh, I'm doing a sort of a mix of virtual and in-person events to talk about uh, the state you're in, which is, um, you know, my, my big bestseller came out in 2016. It was Oh, Florida how America's weirdest state influences the rest of the country. And um, 16 different publishers turned it down initially and said, no, nobody's going to want to read a book about Florida. But fortunately, St. Martin's Press said yes. And uh, and so they put the book out. It got rave reviews in the Los Angeles Times and New York Times and Washington Post. 
and made the New York Times bestseller list and, and won a gold medal from the Florida Book Awards. So um, everywhere I went to plug that book in 2016 and 2017, people would tell me their Florida stories um, and and some of which I can repeat. One, My favorite one was the family who discovered that they were uh, that their new next door neighbors were running an illegal nudist bed and breakfast. And the way they found out was they gave their kids a trampoline for Christmas. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but the other thing that happened was that people would say, when are you going to write a sequel? You need to write a sequel to this book. There's all kinds of wacky stuff still happening in Florida. Why don't you write a sequel? Why don't you write Oh Florida Two, electric boogaloo? And I kept thinking, well, I kind of have said all I want to say, but then I, then I thought, well, maybe there's a way to do a, sort of a sequel that's not a direct sequel but it's sort of a son of oh florida so that's what that's what uh the state you're in is all about it's a collection of stories and columns i've written over the past 30 years that share that theme of celebrating florida's glorious weirdness and uh in different sections so there's a section on florida men and florida women there's a section called crime does not pay enough uh, there's a section uh, called the wild wildlife, and then there's a section called the state you're in. And each one of those sections has stories in it that tell about, you know, things like, uh, the oldest manatee that died in captivity. Snooty. Uh, there's yes. Snooty. Snooty's <laughs> in there. Uh, there's a, there's a long piece about beggar, the dolphin in Sarasota, the dolphin that, that was loved to death. Uh, there, there's a piece in there about the monkeys running amok at silver Springs. Uh, there's a long piece about uh, uh, the iguanas that are constantly popping up in people's toilets. Uh, the first iguanas I ever saw were actually in Sanibel, uh, in, um, or I'm sorry, in, in uh, Boca Grande, where, uh, you know, they ran across the, the road in front of me, this little four foot tall mini Godzilla and Boca Grande, which then later uh, voted to impose a tax on themselves that would pay for a trapper. Uh, so they're the only city in America, the first city in America, I should say, that, that imposed an iguana tax. And the trapper then later went on and wrote a uh, uh, a cookbook called Save Florida, Eat an Iguana. So I always thought that was a that was a nice sequence of events there. Um, I really I, re I really enjoyed the book and the stories that it contains. I grew up in Florida, so I'm always interested in getting little tidbits. And we'll get to some of the deeper – or I'm going to dive down into a couple of those stories in a little bit. But I just wanted to know sure. um, the, co the cover art. How many times have you been car yes. caricatured in your life? It seems like you might not be somebody who's been caricatured. Not not too many. And I'm sorry, I would like to apologize. They couldn't find a handsomer cover model for that. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, Andy Marlette, who is the editorial cartoonist in, at my hometown paper in Pensacola at the Pensacola News Journal, drew that uh, that cover. And it's, I think it's brilliant. He, he's got me posed like the like I'm the Statue of Liberty, but I'm holding an alligator in one hand. In the other hand, I'm holding Condominium by John D. McDonald, which I think is a fairly appropriate choice. <laughs> and then there's a python wrapped around one of my legs. So um, it's it's uh, I think that, that cover really captures the spirit of the book. Did you know that your face is on a huge banner in front of the Sydney and Burn Davis Art Center in downtown Fort Myers? I, I have heard and also that my big face, surprisingly, was not able to scare away the giant spider. That yeah, there's a spider <laughs> next to it. <laughs> so you're going to be coming I they here. I put it up as a, as a scarecrow type thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to be coming here for, uh, for one of their author uh, lunches or lectures or whatever it is? Yes, in, in, in January. In January, that is. So, but you can, you can uh, enjoy the services of that makeshift scarecrow until then, at least. Um, this might seem like a strange question, but maybe not. But has leaving the Tampa Bay Times opened up any doors for you? 
Uh, yes, actually it has. Uh, I've been able to do a lot more freelance stuff. Uh, doing, I've done pieces for uh, Politico, for uh, National Geographic. I did a piece for uh, uh, Scientific American. Um, and also I, I was able to do a weekly podcast of the Welcome to Florida podcast where we, our, our goal is we, we set it up as, uh, you know, there's 900 new people moving to Florida every day and nobody tells them what they're getting into. So we were trying to we're trying to tip them off to things like, you know, we've interviewed a python hunter, an alligator wrangler, a nudist, someone who, who literally wrote the book on the villages. Um, our most recent one was about the homeless population around Celebration, the, uh, the Disney inspired community in central Florida. And uh, so we tackle some serious stuff. but We also do some some more lighthearted stuff like there's a, a history of the Cuban sandwich uh, where we interviewed a, an expert on that that topic and we just we're kind of having fun with and learning a lot about florida at the same time has your process for finding and writing stories changed at all since you left the times or is it still you're still doing basically the same thing in your head i'm still doing a lot the same thing but it takes longer uh you know before when i worked in daily newspaper i could just walk over to an editor in the newsroom and say you know hey bill i'm gonna do a story on such and so and would say fine i'd produce the story by the end of the day and it'd be in the next day's paper now you know you're pitching stuff to, to editors who are miles away and maybe they'll get back to you in three weeks and maybe they won't so it, it's a slower process but i can certainly write longer uh, i did a big piece for flamingo magazine for instance about uh tt wentworth who was the big mr history up in pensacola my hometown and then the, to the point where they actually named the the history museum after him because a lot of it was stuff that he had collected. But then it turned out that in his collection was his membership card for the Ku Klux Klan. He was not just a Klan leader in the 1920s. He was the Klan leader in Pensacola in the 1920s. And so then there was a huge uproar and his name was taken off the museum. And so so I, w- I was able to write a long sort of personal piece about that, um, th- that kind of thing. So if it, it has definitely been been somewhat freeing to be laid off from, from the Times. I, I miss writing for a daily paper. Don't get me wrong, but on the other hand, I'm able to do a lot more uh, now than I could do before. You are writing for the Florida Phoenix now. Tell us about it. It's a nonprofit news site, small team, deep dives. Is that kind of the gist? Yeah, that's kind of the gist of it. And the people in charge used to work for the Times. Uh, Diane Rado is my editor, and and, uh, Diane used to work in the Tallahassee Bureau. I'm teamed up with uh, Pulitzer winner Lucy Morgan, who does, uh, does columns. And I do a weekly column about environmental issues and lord knows there's plenty of them in florida to write about um and, and i've been very gratified by the reaction that they've gotten a lot of people uh sort of cheering on the stuff that i've been writing so that's been nice yeah no and it's really uh, i've read a lot of the stories that are coming out of there and you guys are doing great work just wanted to pass that along um okay well let's, let's get to some of the stories in this book so it, this like sure. you said it contains some of the quirkier pieces that didn't wind up in other books <laughs> of the things you've written over the years you mentioned nudists there's nudists in there um yes uh the the ballad of alligator ron bergeron we've we've talked to him on this show before <laughs> when he came on oh, board yeah. for the south florida water management <laughs> district um i want to start though with elvis and the florida man and i don't want to give oh, away yes. all your punchlines, but can you give us a synopsis of that one well, it's about a, a particular uh, uh, character uh, in Florida history, a, a con man who uh, for a time worked for the Humane Society in Tampa as as their Tampa dog catcher and how he wound up hooking up with Elvis and how that sort of changed the uh, the trajectory of both their lives. And uh, he was 
he was quite the con man. Uh, he was, uh, he, at one point he set up a, a pet graveyard where he was making lots of money, uh, selling graveyard space in this place where you could bury your pets after they died. And, uh, um, they've still got it. It's a much more legitimate organization now than it used to be, but they, they still have the pet graveyard there and they were trying to figure out, figure out where to put it. And that was the sort of the occasion for me to write that story about Tampa's dog catcher and Elvis. And he, he was Colonel Tom, right? He was Elvis's guy. Yes. Yeah. That ended up becoming <laughs> Colonel, Colonel Tom. Parker, but he was like, he was, he was like a Dutch immigrant who was, you know, not being got, straight with people. Kicked out of the army. And yes, <laughs> no, he was quite the, quite the rascal and, and had somehow segued from being a dog catcher to promoting country music concerts. And then the minute he saw Elvis, he knew that's the guy, that's the guy that's going to make my fortune. And so he, uh, managed to squeeze out some other potential managers and put himself in charge. And uh, he was right. It definitely made his fortune. Huh. Uh, now I want to move on to Encyclopedia Brown. Now that's a name I haven't yes. thought of in a, quite a while um, since at least the early 90s when I worked at a bookstore. But I read those books re, you know, religiously as a kid. Mm-hmm. So it really resonates with me. And I didn't realize, I guess I probably would have if I looked back at the texts, but those took place in Florida. Uh, and yes. the author lived in Florida, right? Yes, yes. Donald J. Sobel, the most popular author you've never heard of, uh, lived in Miami in the middle of the whole, you know, the whole cocaine cowboy movement, uh, you know, where they're having shootouts on I-95. He's he's in there reading about it in his daily paper and then sitting down to write another story about Encyclopedia Brown solving a bank robbery because of his knowledge of Civil War trivia. You know, but yeah, he's a Encyclopedia Brown is a Florida man. If you read to read carefully, you see that Idaville is is sort of this idealized '50s Florida beach town, and uh, and Donald J. Sobel definitely was a Florida man. Did you read uh, Encyclopedia Brown as a oh, younger heavens, person? Yes. I, I read Encyclopedia Brown religiously when I was a kid, and then uh, I read the stories to my kids when they got old enough as well. I, they were a favorite. Uh, bedtime story for my kids. So funny little tidbit. So in that you talk about the headline, uh, quote, drug dealers masquerading as cops arrested by cops masquerading as drug dealers. And I thought being, (laughs) well, I Googled that in quotes. And the only two things that came up were your website and what appears to be a Russian hosted site, postlife.ru, but it was a broken link. So I don't know what that no, means, I but I just that. thought I'd pass that well, along to you. Yeah, I mean, I got it from from um, uh, newspapers.com from that website. That's where I found that. Oh, that's so funny. Um, okay, um, so you mentioned his name was Donald J. Sobel. So maybe not as famous, but yeah. certainly he sold more books than the other well-known Donald J. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> and he wrote them himself. <laughs> there were no there were no ghostwriters involved. If the book has several. There are several pieces in there about uh, Florida storytellers that I like to think of as, you know, people who are sort of my predecessors. Um, so there's a piece in there about John D. McDonald, who of course lived in Sarasota and was a big uh, environmental activist there and managed to work those environmental messages into his stories. And then, um, uh, you know, his Travis McGee series. And then there's a piece on Elmore Leonard, who we think of as being a Detroit guy, but uh, he lived here part-time. He lived in Boca Raton part-time. And and uh, r- a lot of his best books are set in Florida, or at least start there. Excuse me. And then the um, uh, there's a piece in there on uh, Charles Williford, who was sort of the godfather of the Miami crime novel. And uh, uh, t- it tells the story about how somebody sent back one of his books 
they bought a hardback copy of Sideswipe, which was a sequel to Miami Blues, and um, uh, said it's a crime to charge this much money for a hard for for this book. And then they had put six bullet holes through the book, and people were horrified. They're like, "Oh my God, Charles, you needed to report this to the police. Call the FBI." And Charles was like, "No, no, it's good to get feedback." <laughs> <laughs> Probably framed it. Um, yes. if, if you're just tuning in, I'm talking with journalist and author Craig Pittman about his latest book, "The State You're In: Florida Men, Florida Women, and Other Wildlife." Pittman spent 30 years as an investigative journalist and columnist, and he writes these days primarily for the nonprofit news site Florida Phoenix. To engage with us and fellow listeners about our conversation, find us on Facebook, we're at WGCU Public Media, and on Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GC. Did you resist any urges or temptations to revise any writing before putting it into a book now? Um, there was some revision done. Uh, there, there's a piece in there on uh, the lady in the villages who was caught shoplifting while dressed as a turkey. And uh, <laughs> you know, when I asked her, why were you dressed as a turkey? She said, it's November. You know, like, hey, it's Thanksgiving. Everybody dressed this up as a church for Thanksgiving. Uh, I took out her last name. I thought, you know, by now the case has been resolved. It would probably be unfair to her to put her whole name in there. So or just her first name is in there. Uh, but the rest of the stuff in there is not is not revised. I, I, I would put a, uh, an editor's note at the beginning or the end of a piece to talk, tell a little bit more about that particular topic. But what you see is what you get, uh, basically. Um, my favorite note, by the way, is is the one on the piece on the uh, the mysterious swamp creature. Everybody in the panhandle thought there was a this creature out there called the leopard eel, which was this long, skinny. Um, uh, they thought it was an eel that had spots on it and little wings on the sides of its head. And these scientists found it and found the real one and, and uh, stored it away in a Tupperware uh, container. And then they did the the science on their own time, on their own using their own money to actually describe this thing. It was a type of salamander that they wound up describing as a, a reticulated. They called it the reticulated eel, the reticulated siren. And um, uh, the little wings turns out to be uh, ex- external gills that it uses for breathing. And after the piece ran, I got the uh, the, the editor's note at the end says I got a long. Uh, and very sternly worded letter from a New York patent attorney for the Tupperware company, wanting to know if that was definitely a piece of Tupperware or if it was some <laughs> some other kind of plasticware that was used to store away the, the leopard eel. And I wrote back and said, look, I know Tupperware is based in Kissimmee. I love all things Florida, including the Tupperware company. I would never, you know, print something that would be derogatory to uh, to the Tupperware brand. And yes, it was definitely Tupperware they used to store this this uh, mysterious swamp creature. And I think you're missing a bet. I think your clients at Tupperware need to get an endorsement from this scientist <laughs> saying, if you ever find a mysterious swamp creature stored in Tupperware, that way we would be sure it'll never get away. <laughs> For some reason, Tupperware has not taken my advice on this matter. <laughs> and Tupperware clearly keep, has some Google alerts set up or something. Um, we yeah, act- something like that. <laughs> we actually talked to the researchers behind that salamander on this show, I don't know, three, four years ago, something like that. Um, it's a fascinating story. And, yeah. and it sort of points up that there, there's lots of stuff out there that we don't know about. We have no idea about some of the, some of the stuff that's still out there. You know, that's still a mystery to us. So, you know, keep your eyes open next time you're out wandering around in the Florida swamps. I want to bring up uh, another piece, mostly just to highlight one thing. It was the protagonist in the piece called The Phoniest 
blank that walks. I'm not sure if I can say that on the radio or not. Probably, but I'm going to skip it. Um, you wrote we'll it in March. SOB. We'll yes. Say SOB. Uh, you wrote it in March of 94. The guy's name was Joe uh, Bujan, or how do you pronounce that? Do you know? Bujan. Bujan. Buj- Joe Bujan. Yes. He's the most audacious con man I ever encountered in my, in my years on the court beat. Um, I, wrote, I covered courts before I covered the environment. And um, uh, he had this long string of victims including a judge um uh and you might wonder how could he how can he he victimize a judge well he was on the run from the law and he had his girlfriend with him and his girlfriend wanted to get married so to shut her up joe went to this judge and said how much do you charge to marry couples and the judge named a price and so they they uh they got married and joe wrote the judge's check to cover the cost of the ceremony and what, what was not mentioned was that a there was no bank account to back up the check. And B, it wasn't a real check. It was actually just a piece of paper that Joe had drawn to look like a check. <laughs> and he, so he had paid the paid the judge with a phony check. He was on the run from the law. And oh, by the way, he had not finalized the divorce from his first wife yet either. So he was committing bigamy by getting married while he was on the run. So uh, Joe was sort of a multitasking uh, con man. <laughs> well, and it was the it was the hand drawn check that I wanted to bring up because it shows how much times have changed. That you know, twenty five, thirty years ago, maybe a bit more, you could draw a check on a piece mm-hmm. of paper and it would fly, and you could scam people. Yep. And what I'm really getting at is, is as you've worked on Florida stories and stories in general over the years, can you sort of reflect on how technology has changed, maybe the tone or the feeling of the Florida vibe as captured in your kinds of stories? Well, but yes and no, because uh, Florida still leads the country in identity fraud and tax fraud. So, you know, we it, the, the methods may be more technologically advanced, but the motivation to rip people off by lying about it is still going on. It's jo- the spirit of Joe Pujan lives on <laughs> in Florida. Um, the other thing I wanted to highlight, which is a, a, a kind of a touching piece, it was about the mug shots. Can you just time talk about that just a little bit about how sure, you, sure. yeah, you, well, you can explain it. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I highlight wacky stories about Florida in, in my Twitter feed and friends will post stuff on my Facebook page and, and other places. And so, um, this one friend in Miami, a guy named Bill had sent me this mug shot of this guy looking, he had. Stuff smeared on his face to look kind of goofy. So I posted that as the Florida mugshot du jour. And then a day later, Bill called and said, take it down. Take it down. The guy's a, a military veteran. He served several uh, uh, rounds in Afghanistan. And he's got PTSD and he's suffering. And so that explains what's going on there. And please just take it down. And so I did. And But the the message sort of resonated with me, which is the more you know about some of these cases, the more tragic they become. And and so maybe the question we need to ask is, you know, we're there but for the grace of God go I. Well, what would, what would it be like for me to go through what that person is going through? And so I wrote a column about that, about how, you know, we'll laugh about some of these mugshots, but then when you kind of peel the surface back, it's, it's more tragic than comedy. Um, we're coming up to the end of our time, but I wanted to just get you to um, talk about Brady's on a train, which really cracked <laughs> really cracked me up. Yes, yeah. So everybody knows the whole the Brady Bunch story, and I used to watch it when I would come home from from school in the afternoons. I was a latchkey kid before we knew what the term was, and uh, I wasn't supposed to turn on the TV until I got my homework done. But of course, I did. I turned on the TV and you know did my homework during the commercials and. 
Brady Bunch reruns would come on and I got really hung up on the the theme song because it you know here's the story of a lovely lady with three girls here's the story of a man named Brady had three boys they never talk about the other spouses they never talk about the missing mom or the missing dad and so I started you know theorizing that there'd been this crisscross murder like in Strangers on a Train where they had each killed the other one's spouse in order to set up their uh set up their new household and and so I, I made a joke about that on twitter one time and an editor at slate said if you write that up i'll pay you for it and i said okay so i wrote i wrote a piece about you know that that was the that was the way they became the brady bunch it was it was so much more than a hunch um, well that is all the time we have i just wanted to say we don't have time to talk about it but i really enjoyed the uh, story at the end about great uncle carlisle that was a really touching well, way you. to end the end the book yeah it was it was a way to kind of pay tribute to the to florida storytellers because that's really the theme here is florida stories and florida story yep All right. Thanks to our guest. Craig Pittman is a journalist and author who writes for the Florida Phoenix. He spent decades writing for the Tampa Bay Times. We've been talking about his latest book, The State You're In, Florida Men, Florida Women, and Other Wildlife. Craig, thank you so much for your time and for your stories. My pleasure. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org slash gcl, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Richard Chinqui. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is NPR for Southwest Florida, 90.1 WGCU-FM, Fort Myers, Naples, and Punta Gorda, and 91.7 WMKO Marco Island. We're a member-supported service of Florida Gulf Coast University. 